Listener Production. So, will you be getting the monkeypox vaccine? The rollout is starting this week, and as you're going to find out in this episode, only people from particular at-risk groups will be getting it to begin with. But I do wonder how quickly people will be lining up for another vaccine. Yeah, it certainly seems like we've had a lot to deal with on that front lately. I also wonder whether COVID has made us either more vigilant about this kind of thing or more fatigued when it comes to new diseases. Yeah, at last count, there were 58 cases of the virus detected in Australia and 26,000 around the world. And the World Health Organisation has declared it a public health emergency, but they've pulled up short of declaring it a pandemic. So in today's briefing, we thought we should look into how worried we should all be about monkeypox and how it's different from COVID. In the majority of the cases, 95, even up to 99% in some countries, occur in men and particularly men who have sex with men. And it's actually even more specific than that. It's men who have sex with men and often with a number of sexual partners. First, today's headlines. It's Tuesday, August the 9th. Olivia Newton-John has passed away at the age of 73. Yeah, the Australian singer and actor died peacefully, surrounded by her family in her home in California. She'd been a symbol of triumph and hope over the last 30 years, sharing her journey with breast cancer. Yeah, very sad news. Tributes around the world are flowing in. The family has asked that instead of laying flowers, we donate to the Olivia Newton-John Foundation Fund. So many hits, Tom. And, you know, she's done so much for, I guess, the wellness world in in later years and uh, been just a beautiful spokesperson for all um, people who've had cancer everywhere. Yeah, and two big Australian voices that we're saying goodbye to this week, along with Judith Durham, um, Olivia Newton-John today. So two incredible women and two of the most recognisable Australian female voices ever. The Commonwealth Games is drawing to a close this morning with Australia coming out on top of the medal count, but only just. Yeah, so we were just two medals ahead of England. So they were closing in. Um, We were 10 gold ahead, though. So on the overall count, we got 178. They got 176. And Canada... Um, way in the distance out in third place with just 92. <laughs> Overnight, the Kookaburras became the men's hockey champions for the seventh time from seven attempts. They are just unbeatable. They smashed India 7-0. Something with the number seven there. And with these games finishing up uh, in Birmingham, attention is now shifting to the next games, which are in regional Victoria in 2026. The closing ceremony is, is really important for us. That's really where we, we start to introduce the world to the Victorian 26 um, Commonwealth Games. That's the Chief Executive Officer of the Organising Committee, Jerome Weimar there. So these games are going to be held, as you said, Tom, in the regional Victorian towns of Geelong, Bendigo, Ballarat and Gippsland. Uh, it's being seen as a bit of a blueprint for the 2032 Olympics, which is going to be held in a lot of different places in southeast Queensland. I think that's really cool, bringing those massive events to these small cities in, in regional Australia. It showcases a part of Australia that people from around the world don't often see. And these are amazing towns with amazing history and communities. So I'm really looking forward to that. China has announced it's extending military drills around the island of Taiwan, even though they were scheduled to end yesterday. China's also started drills in the Yellow Sea near South Korea, 
The duration and precise location of the latest drills is not yet known, but Taiwan had already eased flight restrictions around where China had been exercising those earlier drills. Yeah, so we did a bit of an explainer on this topic in our briefing episode yesterday, if you want to catch up on that one. So all of this follows last week's visit to Taiwan's capital, Taipei, by the US House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. And speaking to reporters on Air Force One, the US President Joe Biden still refused to criticise Pelosi's trip. I'm not worried, but I'm concerned that they're moving as much as they are. But I don't think they're going to do anything more. I was her decision. That's her decision. So after yesterday's briefing where we spoke to a foreign policy researcher who was born in Taiwan, she basically finished that interview by saying the Taiwanese people got nothing out of this visit except for this intense reaction from China. So I'm still struggling to see any upside from Nancy Pelosi's decision to visit Taiwan. A dramatic appearance in the New South Wales inquiry into the appointment of the former Deputy Premier to a highly paid job. So yesterday, the man at the centre of the controversy, John Barillaro, finally gave his version of events to this parliamentary inquiry. He said that he regrets applying for the half a million dollar a year New York trade gig, which he's since had to resign from. If I knew what I know now, I wish I never had applied. If I knew what I knew now, I wouldn't have walked into what was a shit show. I'm going to use those terms, I'm sorry to say, because the trauma I've gone through the last six, seven weeks has been significant. He also said that he was the victim, not the perpetrator of this saga, and he dragged the Premier into it, saying that he flagged his interest in the role to Dominic Perrottet, as well as speaking to the then Trade Minister, Stuart Ayres, and he texted the Treasurer, Matt Keane, about it too. Barilaro also refuted any suggestion he was after special treatment, And then also in the inquiry yesterday, it came out that his former staffer turned girlfriend was working in the department that administered the position and that he had recommended her for that job. And he was told to expect more questions about that when hearings start again on Friday. We're finishing off the headlines with a lighter note about one of your favourite royals, Tom. Mm. Uh, A former stripper is auctioning off a pair of what she says are Prince Harry's undies. Wow, what a story. So um, her name is Carrie Rickert and she says Harry handed her his black undies after he got nude in a Las Vegas hotel 10 years ago. This is the old Harry, isn't it? Um, Harry was photographed (laughs) cupping his crown jewels whilst hugging a woman in a VIP hotel room at the Encore at Wynn, Las Vegas. I almost forgot that there was this side to Harry. Uh, Rickett says that the then 27-year-old Duke of Sussex played air guitar to the tune of Michael Jackson's Beat It, and he used a glove to cover his crotch. I wonder what the glove would auction for. Anyway, we're talking about the undies today. They were previously in the Vegas Erotic Heritage Museum, but uh, Rickard says she's now selling them, along with a swimsuit and dress she wore on the night, to remind everyone of the old fun Harry before he became a bore. <laughs> All right, so if you're interested in this, uh, it is online. You can just search for this. And I, I looked at it earlier. The link came up. It starts at 10 grand, and a portion of the sale will even go to Harry and Meghan's charity, Archwell. Do you reckon the palace have, have planted this story just as a way of niggling <laughs> a, a Harry? Look, look over here story. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe it's Harry trying to remind people of, of when he used to be fun. I can only imagine uh, if all accounts are true about what Megan is like, I don't think she would like this story very much at all. All right, in a moment, we're talking monkeypox.
This week, the first Australians will start getting the monkeypox vaccine after the WHO declared it a public health emergency. So far, all but two of our 58 cases here in Australia have come from travellers returning from overseas. So how worried should you be? Should you be lining up for the vaccine now that the federal government has got 450,000 doses? To join us to answer all these questions is infectious diseases expert Dr Paul Griffin from the University of Queensland. Dr Griffin, thanks for joining us. Where and how did monkeypox first ever emerge? It's not a new virus by any means. It was first discovered in monkeys in Africa in the 50s, in fact, with the first human case reported a little bit after that in about 1970 in the Democratic Republic of Congo. It's been around a long time and has traditionally caused fairly small numbers of cases, particularly in that area, but has actually escaped to other parts of the world with a, a notable outbreak in the US in 2003 relating to pet prairie dogs. So it's not the first time that it's uh, been out of Africa, but certainly the first time we've seen case numbers anywhere near what we're seeing at the moment. All right. So what changed that led to this current emergency? Yeah, look, that's a, a really good question. And hopefully some of the recent announcements by the WHO and many countries in, in terms of categorising this as a very significant public health event will facilitate some further research. So maybe we can understand how it's been able to spread as, as widely as it has in recent times. There's you know, been a, a lot of speculation uh, relating to things like we don't have to vaccinate people against smallpox anymore, given that was eradicated some time ago. So maybe people's immunity to that was what was helping keep it at bay uh, up until recently times there's probably been some kind of change in the virus we haven't clearly identified what that is uh, and maybe people's behaviors too in terms of not moving around for a while and now moving around again as people uh, you know ease their pandemic restrictions maybe that's contributing as well but the simple answer there is we we still don't know exactly how this event ha- has happened but it'll be really important for us to try and get a better understanding so we can obviously address what's happening now and and hopefully prevent things like this happening again in the future. So how quickly is it spreading? Isn't anything close to the way COVID was spreading in its early months? really important to to make a clear distinction from respiratory viruses like COVID. So this isn't spreading anywhere near as quickly, nor is it as easy to transmit as things like COVID and influenza. So while the case numbers are clearly a lot higher than we'd like to see, it's actually something that's quite hard to transmit. It does require close physical contact with infected fluids. So that's the fluid from the from the blisters or or the vesicles that we see or or other body fluids like blood, for example. So it actually does take quite a bit of contact to be able to transmit. And the the main thing that's really good about that is basic infection control principles where we find cases early and we isolate them can go a really long way to reducing the prospect of onward transmission in infected cases. Now, in terms of this uh, vaccine rollout, we're hearing that it is going to be made available initially to people considered high risk, so um, specific people in the community, who is at highest risk? Yeah, so at the moment, we are seeing the majority of the cases, 95, even up to 99% in some countries, uh, occur in men and particularly men who have sex with men. And it's actually even more specific than that. It's it's men who have sex with men and often with a number of sexual partners uh, or, or maybe commercial sex workers, for example, as well as, uh, you know, some with HIV. So we can identify risk factors. It's important to point out, though, that we, we shouldn't assume every case uh, will occur in those groups will be or stigmatising or discriminatory because it can infect people outside of those groups, but they're the ones that are comprised 
comprising the bulk of the cases at the moment and so make a good population to prioritise in terms of our vaccine rollout. The other good way we might be able to use it is to actually vaccinate people who have been identified as contacts or, or maybe even a so-called ring fencing approach where if we find cases, all of their close contacts could be vaccinated to prevent uh, transmission occurring outside of that individual case. So why is it mostly being transmitted in that population? Yeah, again, another great question, one we don't really have a simple answer for. I mean, there were certainly some, some events where there was a lot of close physical contact between large numbers of people and many of whom had travelled from other parts of Europe to, to meet up in certain events where, where spread was certainly facilitated particularly early. So, you know, like a lot of these infections, like we see with COVID, again, a very different virus, but sometimes people's behaviours can have an influence on transmission and how much we see. And in this case, there are, there are some behaviours where there's a lot of close physical contact particularly with people maybe coming together from many parts of the world that is facilitating spread. As I say, we shouldn't assume all cases arise in that mm. way because it can be uh, in anybody who does have sufficient close physical contact. But at the moment, that's certainly the bulk of the cases we're seeing. What were those events you're talking about? So there was things like a, a festival, but a festival of, uh, uh, of people to, to come together for certain sexual activity that included a lot of really close physical contact. I guess in COVID terminology, we could potentially call those super spreader events for, for want of a better description, but certainly some significant behavioural elements that, that contribute to facilitation of spread. Was it like a big gay pride march or was it a private orgy or what are we talking about here, Paul? Yeah, so, so things like a, a fetish festival where people came together to, I guess, uh, explore some of those uh, sort of fetishes. And there was uh, a lot of sex parties, for example, where, where large numbers of people did uh, undertake, uh, you know, close physical contact with, with large numbers of other people. And, you know, again, not something that occurs necessarily commonly, particularly in our country, but certainly uh, enough close physical contact in large numbers there for it to, to facilitate spread of this infection. What's it like if you get it? Another really reassuring thing we can point out is in most people, it settles down by itself pretty quickly. It's what we would call self-limiting. So for many people, there's an incubation period of you know five days up to three weeks, and then it usually starts off, it has kind of two distinct phases. So it starts off with more systemic features like you'd see with a number of other viral infections. So things like headaches, fevers, aches and pains. One thing that's a bit different with this one is you can get swollen glands, so lymphadenopathy. So people might see some swelling in their, in their neck or under their arms, for example. And then a few days after that, typically, that's when the rash will start, the rash that we're seeing so many pictures of. And you know, that can often start as more flat little lumps and bumps, and then they can fill up a bit and, and fill with fluid to, to look a little bit like chickenpox blisters, I guess, but they are a little bit different, maybe a bit bigger, typically on the extremities, uh, so in areas that, uh, that are visible. And, and as I say, that, that fluid in those blisters, in those vesicles, is what is highly infectious and, and can transmit the virus if people do have close physical contact with that. And what about how dangerous it is? Does it kill many people? No, reassuringly, the answer to that is no. So um, there are a few different strains and you know some that are still circulating in Africa do have quoted mortality rates of up to 10%. But the one that's circulating globally has a much lower mortality rate, which previously was quoted as, as maybe around 1%, but it's probably a bit less than that, um, particularly given the countries where we're seeing cases. And so the vast majority of people, expectations are that they should recover fully probably in around three to four weeks. Okay, so... It doesn't generally kill people. Um, you recover in a few weeks and it's confined to a relatively defined part of the population, at least so far. 
Does that mean the general population doesn't need to be that worried about it? Absolutely. So we're certainly recommending people have a basic awareness. So we find cases early and we isolate them, but we don't want people to, to think that they need to be worried necessarily. And for example, we're not recommending that the whole population is going to get vaccinated, far from that. But as I say, what we need is for the general public to have a basic awareness that if they get potentially compatible symptoms, particularly if they've been a contact or engaging in some high-risk activities. And then we need our clinicians, our, our doctors and nurses on the front line to also be uh, aware of what symptoms people might present with so we can do the right testing quickly and, and find cases and isolate them. Because given it is a bit harder to transmit, finding cases quickly and isolating them appropriately is still our best defence to reduce the number of cases we'll see. So we're hearing uh, the Australian government has managed to get our hands on 450,000 doses of what seems to be quite a hard-to-get vaccine. Who should be getting it and how do you think the uptake will go? Yeah, one of the other things we're really lucky about with this infection is that we have safe and effective vaccines that have already been developed. And yes, they are in short supply, but we've done a great job of securing I think what was likely to be more than enough doses. I think personally we'll start off with a fairly small group who will get vaccinated. I think people that are identified close contacts of cases uh, will be good candidates for vaccination and people that might be engaging uh, in um, a lot of high risk activities. So particularly men who have sex with men who might have multiple partners, commercial sex workers, for example, or be planning on travelling to some of those events, whether it be a, a gay cruise or a, a festival where, again, they're planning on engaging in uh, sexual activity with multiple partners. They would be people who would be you know, really good candidates for vaccination in the first instance. Paul, this whole thing comes at a quite an interesting time that we've just been dealing with two and a half years of a, a global pandemic. Now, monkeypox is not a pandemic um, because there are not enough cases to hit that categorization. And I wonder, you know, does the experience of the last two years, do you think, make us more vigilant or more fatigued about the risk of something like this? Yeah, look, I think that's a great question because I think on one hand, we'd like to think people's health literacy has been enhanced by all the discussion about viruses and vaccines. And so people's awareness, their ability to be receptive to this sort of information about basic public health measures would be increased. But then on the other hand, I think so many people are simply fatigued and overwhelmed. And, and there's been a lot of information around viruses and vaccines over the last few years, a lot of misinformation that I think has been particularly harmful. So, so now when we talk about a, another virus, I think there's many people who really aren't receptive to just taking on board the basics. And of course, there are a lot of conspiracy theories and, you know, some of them are you know, just uh, down uh, outright ridiculous, but things that this relates to the COVID vaccine, for example, and that this is, uh, you know, part of an intentional conspiracy. And I can assure people that's not the case. As I say, <laughs> this virus has been around for a long time. It's unfortunate timing in that it's occurring in the midst of another pandemic, but hopefully we can take away some of the learnings from COVID, that we do need people to be aware and on board and make sure, though, that people understand this is a very different virus. And we just really need, as I say, not panic. We don't need people to be worried because this is going to remain rare, but we just need that basic level of awareness so we find cases and isolate them. Yeah, well, when you give that message where you, you tell people to be aware of it but not to be overly alarmed, it does make me think that there are, you know, some of us who are so scarred by the last two and a half years that mm -hmm. we are hypervigilant about what might come next. But then I guess on a more comforting note, we all have, as you say, the literacy, but also the health systems from, you know, the way we communicate information about the spread of diseases now through to the way we roll out vaccines, which I imagine puts us in a much better place to deal with anything like this from this point forward. 
Oh, absolutely. I, I agree with that. And, you know, I, I think it's been great that we've been able to secure the number of doses that we have of this vaccine when it is in high demand and short supply uh, across the world. And the way we do communicate messaging, you know, I think that has, has really helped. So hopefully we can get these messages out there. I would certainly encourage people to make sure they stick with reputable sources because, you know, once again, there's a lot of misinformation that's being propagated simultaneously. And, you know, there's there's a lot of great sources and people really need to just look at the, the source that they're getting their information from, make sure it is of good quality and, and that it's reliable. And, and, you know, by and large, that should really be quite a reassuring message at the moment, which is this is something that we take seriously and we want awareness of and we're going to be prepared, but we don't need everybody in the population to be overly concerned at the moment. That was Dr. Paul Griffin, infectious disease expert, and uh, I eventually got it out of him there, Katrina, that a lot of the cases were spread from a huge fetish party. Yeah, it's something I hadn't read much about or heard much about, and he was a little reluctant to go there. I'm glad you pushed him on it. It's hard with these kinds of things because you you worry that, uh, like with HIV in the past, whether it's going to attract some zealotry and some bigotry um, when it is a really worrying issue. Yeah, that's right. It was good to hear Dr. Paul Griffin, though, give a very realistic sense of the risk posed by this outbreak and warning people to be sort of alert but not too alarmed to this. All right, that is it for today's briefing. Tomorrow is one you won't want to miss. We're asking... What would you do if part of one of Elon Musk's rockets landed on your property? Listener.